If you got a Bible, grab it, go to Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. As you're turning there, we know that all scripture is God-breathed. It's the inerrant word of God, that all scripture is given to us for teaching and training. But sometimes you come to a passage of scripture and it is not necessarily one that causes us to just rest in it. It's not necessarily one of those ones that you'd find on a throw pillow or a coffee cup that just makes us have the warm fuzzies inside. Sometimes you come to a passage of scripture and it's not one that you rest in, but it's one you wrestle with. And our passage of scripture today is one that does require some wrestling with, but on the other side of that wrestling, my hope is that there it would be rest for all of us. So if you got a Bible, Hebrews 12, I'm gonna recap a little bit. We'll go through the whole entire um, collection of verses that we read last week, and we'll stop today around verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is discipline, or for discipline, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the recurring mention of the word discipline. And I know that word conjures up all sorts of different things in our mind, whether it be pain, whether it be training, whether it be a lack of what we would call self-discipline, or even the disciplines that we would boast in that we have somehow mastered. But Father, today I pray as we come to your word, a slightly intimidating prayer, that you would discipline us, that you would guide and correct us, because if this scripture is true, then asking you to discipline us is synonymous with asking you to father us. And there's nothing that we need greater than to know the love of you, the Father. However it comes, and whatever package we receive it in, whether it be warmth and gentleness, or pain and chastisement, you are a father who knows what's best for our children. And as we come to this passage today, I pray specifically for the people in this room who are going through pain, that you would 
speak deep into their heart today and remind them that you are a God who understands, a God who sees them in the midst of that and has orchestrated all of the details of their life to get them to this passage today, to be able to hear hope and encouragement, not from a mere man on a stage with a microphone, but from their father who loves them. And I pray that that happens in your name. Jesus, I ask, amen. So to recap a little bit of Hebrews, what this pastor has been doing over and over and over again is reminding this church and showing this church and going to great lengths to explain to them that Jesus is better. He started out at the very beginning going, Jesus is better than angels. And then he from there went, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus offers us a better rest. And he spent a lot of chapters explaining that Jesus is a better priest. He's a true and greater high priest. He was the one that all the high priests ever pointed to. From there, he says that Jesus is a better altar. He's a better sacrifice, that Jesus is a better temple. From there, he goes to great length to explain that even in all our Old Testament heroes, Jesus and his faith towards the Father is all of what all of those things, whether it be physical things and stuff like the temple and the altar and the sacrifice and all of those elements or even human things like different leaders and heroes of the faith, that Jesus is better than all of them and all of them find their culmination in the person, in the presence of Jesus. Jesus, he has quickly told them to with great lengths, Jesus is better. Now what he's done is he has allowed that truth that Jesus is better to be accompanied with the one-two punch of hold fast, don't let go. So over and over again, there's this A-B rhythm to the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than this, hold fast. Jesus is better than this, hold fast. Jesus is greater than this, hold fast. That is how this book goes. And now this pastor has just come off of this litany of heroes in chapters 11 and said, Jesus is better than all of them and all of them and their faith is all ultimately pointing to Jesus. Don't necessarily look to all these guys for anything more than just a testimony, the witness of who Jesus is, but rather look ultimately to Jesus and allow him who is better to make your life better. And so they've heard that and they've sat down and heard this sermon from this pastor about this truth and reality that Jesus is better. But what I believe the pastor under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit knows is that their lives as it's going in that very moment does not seem to be better. And I think he realizes and understands that maybe on the heart of his parishioners, maybe like are on the heart of you guys here today is this kind of intimidating question. If Jesus is better, then why are our lives getting worse? If this wasn't already on the tongues, minds, and hearts of this group of people who were originally hearing and reading this, this question was coming. This is the reason we have chapter 11. This is the reason we have chapter 12. If Jesus is so great, if Jesus is so much better, then why is my life getting worse? If you're here in this room and you knew that there was a chapter of scripture that was dedicated to answering that question for God's people, would that be something you would pay attention to and listen to? I hope it is, because that is what chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews is addressing. Because let's be honest, in a room like this, we've all had these moments where we put our faith and our trust and our hope in Jesus and we maybe had misguided or misconceptions about what that would entail for us, whether that was health or wealth or prosperity or things going great in our life or avoiding certain things. What happens though, when, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and then life doesn't get easier, it actually gets harder. It makes us ask questions like these. 
And hopefully what chapter 12 does is it gives us answers. Not answers that necessarily take the pain away, but answers that cause us to do exactly what this chapter has been telling us to do from the beginning, which is to look to Jesus. There are three things that I think this chapter really does a great job at helping us to understand about pain. I think there are three things that that pastor wanted his church to see, and I'm gonna do my best to show you two of them today, and Lord willing, if we have a next Sunday, I will show you the next one next Sunday. Here's what they are. Here's what he wants them to learn about pain and discipline and the training that God would allow to happen in our life. First, that pain is in fact a gift. Very counterintuitive, but it is a gift. Next, he would want them to understand that pain is not just a result of humans' free will to choose stupid things to do either to themselves or to others, that actually pain is for our good. And last, we'll tackle this next week, Lord willing, is that pain is ultimately leading us to a goal. So let's try to tackle these first two of pain being a gift and pain being for our good today as we walk through this passage. Start in verse three. He says, consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now what he's already done in this passage in the two verses before is he has made them have this understanding that we, as followers of Jesus, have not just entered into this float on by, by and by time waster life that just waits on Jesus' second coming in his return. What this pastor knows is his church, his people, are getting ready to go through some stuff, some stuff that is going to be audacious and terrible and agonizing, which is why if you go up to verse one, when it says to run with endurance the race, marked out for you. If you got a Bible, underline that word race right there in verse one of chapter 12. The Greek word that he uses that translates into race is the Greek word A-G-O-N, agon. It is where we get our English word agony. So when you picture this race that he is encouraging and telling these people that he's getting ready to uh, accompany them on and they're getting to run together as a congregation, this is not a, a, a run a mile with a smile, you know, 5K, you know, turkey trot that they're gonna enter in on for charity. They're going to run an agony journey. Now that's not super uplifting and happy because we don't wanna show up and hear, okay, what is life? Life is a race. Well, what's that race? Agony. Like, that's not super exciting. But when we're honest, man, life is like that sometimes. Now, sometimes we have the rest stops. Sometimes we sit down and we, and we sit on the sidelines and we, we take a breath and we breathe in. But what we talked about last week was that this is a sprint, a daily wake up, sprint, rest, wake up, sprint, run another day. But the key in all of this, and again, we talked about this wholeheartedly last week. If you missed last week, please go back in here and understand that. You will miss everything from chapter 12 if you don't understand the concept and truth that we talked about last week. I'm gonna briefly explain what that is here. He says, you guys have to look to Jesus, which is why he even circles back to it as he starts even verse three, consider him. He's talking our attention back to Jesus. But in verse one, he says, we have to look to Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Then that's when we, with eyes now locked on Jesus and who he is and what he's done with eyes locked hardcore on him, then we can strip off the sin and the weight that so easily entangles. Then we run this race. 
But the key, the hinge point, the fulcrum of all of this is that we have to look to Jesus, which is why he circles right back to this when he hits chapter three. And he says, okay, we must consider him. This idea of consider runs parallel to the idea of looking to Jesus. It's this meditating and contemplating and focusing in upon, doing research on, talking about when you're coming and going and rising and falling. It's this idea of a life spent with eyes locked on Jesus and a mind fixated on what he has done. Consider Jesus. Now, let's look at what he tells them to consider that will hopefully give them a cure for their weariness and a cure for their faint-heartedness. He says, consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. The clue here is there is something in seeing this hostility that Jesus endured against himself from sinners that gives us a cure to our faint-heartedness and our weariness. Now, when you hear a verse like this, and you're encouraged by a pastor in this passage of scripture that says, consider Jesus who endured this hostility from sinners. When you close your eyes or get a mental image of what that verse is talking about, what do you see? For most of us, it's this image of the crucifixion. It's the passion narrative. It's Jesus in that audacious scene in, in the, crucif- the passion of the Christ where, where he's getting flogged. It's Jesus there in those moments going to that. It's, it's those terrible moments in the movie where you see the crowd and just their, the, the anger that they have on their faces and the, the red in their eyes as they shout, crucify, crucify, crucify. And we think that all those rebellious people there in the crowd and then the wicked centurion soldiers and the the passive pilot that these are all the sinners that were hostile towards Jesus. And friend, yeah, for sure, those were most definitely sinners hostile against our Savior. But friend, what you must understand about what Jesus did on that cross and the hostility that he faced was that it was not just him saving those people in that moment from the sins that had been committed before that moment and the sins that were being committed in that moment. But when Jesus goes to the cross, what he does is he dies for all sins, past, present, and future. And all sin is hostility towards God. The sin you'll commit tomorrow is hostility towards our savior. So what I need you to understand when you read this verse, don't just envision a group of people there in a crowd hostile towards Jesus, begging to release Barabbas, the rebel, so that Jesus, the savior could die. I need you to see yourself in the crowd. I need you to hear yourself shouting crucify. I need you to understand that while Judas may have sold him for 30, I would have sold him for less. While Peter has denied him three times, we have denied him much more that you are included in the hostile group of sinners who have hopefully now been saved. We are those sinners. And when you see and understand that he endured those things, that he went through those things, not just because of what other people did, but because of what you did, and you may even continue to do, this is supposed to be our now cure for this weariness and this faint-heartedness. Somebody get Josh Wright off of our stuff. I know, I know that voice by heart. It's South Carolina. It's Sumter. Get that voice... Somebody go talk to Josh. I know exactly who that is. Okay. He somehow tapped into the frequency of my microphone. That's awesome. Um, So track with me. When he says, okay, consider Jesus. And he's telling us part of our unique cure to weariness and faint heartedness comes in seeing what he endured. Sometimes we can think about that 
like Jesus is just another character in history that we kind of look at and we see what he's done and we go, oh, let that just encourage me and let that bring me some, some peace of mind and let that make me feel motivated or fired up. But what you need to understand is when we're looking to Jesus and considering Jesus, we are not doing it like we would when we were looking at all those people in chapter 11. Well, I consider Moses, but Moses doesn't live in my heart. I consider David, but he doesn't rule even though he was a king, my heart. When it says, look to Jesus and consider Jesus, what it's trying to explain to us is don't get this mind image of consider Jesus, look to Jesus, and he's just out there in the crowd cheering you on. He's just this kind of observer of your life, just going, all right, big guy, you continue to go out there. Remember how much trouble and pain I went through and I went to the cross for you and just continue to, to you know, have a mental snapshot of this and let it motivate you and encourage you. And he just pats us on our butt and says, go out there and get another one, big fella. That is not the looking and the enduring and the considering that he's calling us to. What he wants us to understand is that our looking to him and our considering of him is knowing that he's in here. That's what makes him different. That's what makes chapter 11 different than chapter 12. Jesus now comes and resides inside of these people. This is why I can run this race with perseverance because the author, the beginner and the finisher, the beginner and the perfecter of that race is not someone who I'm trying to follow after. It's one who is leading me from the inside out. That's where he becomes the cure for my weariness. That's where I have, because he's inside of me, his lion heart replaces my faint heart. Now, what's beautiful about this is I don't just think this considering is like out there, I'm considering him, good stuff. Let me just keep this going in my mind and learn a lot of things about who he was and what he did. Yes, this for sure is our template of his life. But we consider these things, we chew on these things, we meditate on Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel and Acts and how the Holy Spirit moved and active and was breathing through the church. But then we consider how what we have seen of Jesus begins to be something that is living out of my life as he comes through me. That's the difference. That's where the cure comes. That's why I don't grow weary because it's no longer my strength, energy, or effort. That's why my heart doesn't faint because it's no longer my heart. There's a different king. There's a different motivation. There's a different resource. An alien resource is now in there operating, giving me the tenacity, giving me the grit because it's him, the one who endured such hostility from sinners like me and like you. Now, he goes from there, and in verse four he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Which, he kinda just sounds like a, a dad there in that verse, just being like, all right, but here's some good news, at least you haven't bled yet. You know, how many of you hate that advice when you're telling somebody about the bad things that happened in your life and they just go, well, it could always be worse. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, it just got worse because I got stupid advice from you. Thank you. Um, appreciate that. Thank you. God, Lord, be bless you and keep you. And may his face shine upon you. Um, thank you for that. We, we know it can always be worse. And so what the pastor isn't trying to do to this people here is go, hey, but good news, it could always be worse. You haven't had it. He, and he isn't trying to make them feel bad for being like, well, you ain't had it like Jesus yet. What he's trying to do is show them, friends, take heart. You are never more like your savior than when you are suffering and experiencing pain like your savior did. He says, and, and this is a really scary word in here, yet. 
He says, you have not yet resisted. You know, you're reading that. If I'm in the living room where this is being read, I, I, I what, hold, hmm, yet? Did you read that right? See, the pastor knows that there has to be this deep-rooted, Holy Spirit-inspired and solidified love and recognition of who Jesus is and what he did, and then the surrender to that same tenacity and fire inside of him that would be begin to live out of our own lives. And that's where this love and hope comes from. So that's why he says what he says here. He goes on and gets a little bit more um, exhorting here to the congregation. He says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And what he's gonna do right here, this is quotations, he's quoting from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter three, verses 11 and 12. He's saying, and the way this, uh, as far as the text of these words here in the Greek, kind of the way it is, is maybe even better translated, it's like he's saying, and please guys, don't tell me that none of y'all have remembered this exhortation from God. You, he's like, you guys have been going this whole entire time, getting ready to face all this stuff, and nobody has even pulled this passage back up. Because remember, he's talking to people who had what? They had, they had the Bible minus the New Testament. They had the scripture. They had the book of Proverbs. He's going, you, you mean to tell me, guys, that y'all are, y'all are freaking out when bad stuff is happening and when pain is coming? Have you guys forgot this passage? And then he writes it to them. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastises every, oh, there's a good word, son whom he receives. And this is an inclusive word. This is, this is meaning like family here. This is, we're men, women, we are brought in on this. He chastises the son whom he receives and he disciplines the one he loves. So what the pastor is trying to do here is he's trying to help them understand that God is a father and any good father will bring discipline to his son. So the point I believe he's trying to make that I would try to make with you guys as well is pain is not a sign of condemnation, that pain is a sign of confirmation. Confirmation of what you ask? That you're his child. It's him, he's saying, stop, he's saying, I wanna put a new frame around the pain in your life. Pain is not a sign that I'm against you or I'm punishing you or I'm not for you. Pain is a sign actually confirming and it's a gift of confirming that you're mine and I'm yours. He goes on to explain this because it is a little bit, confusing and concerning in chapter 12, verse seven, he says, it's for discipline that you have to endure. That word endure means remain under, to which that's, that, that's helpful because no matter what my child does, he has to endure under being my child. He, he's mine, like he has my name, even he can go change that, he can legally no longer be Trent Shoemaker's son, but biologically, chemically, we share the same DNA. There's nothing I can unremain under. He's saying, if you're under the blood of Christ, then endure under the blood of Christ. He says, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He's saying, track track with me here. If God was apathetic and just gave you sunshine and rainbows and you just coasted through life on this like neutral, peaceful ground, what, what that means is that maybe God does not have any attention towards you or maybe that God does not have any affection towards you. But the discipline is a sign that he loves you. We all know this. And parents in the room, you don't just let your kids do what they want to do because you know that they would hurt themselves. And the, the key here is understanding that this discipline 
whether it's via pain or via training that we go through, it is not God primarily punishing us. Remember, the Bible makes this very clear that the punishment that brings us peace was upon who? It's upon Jesus, not, not, not upon you. Now again, if you do stupid things, there are gonna be consequences to those actions. You rob a bank, you're gonna be in trouble. He doesn't say you're not gonna get consequences for your actions. There is a divine punishment against sin though, and that has been paid in full by our Savior. So what this is more so saying is that the discipline or the pain or the hardships you go in life are not punitive. They are things sent to purify your faith. They are sent things, even sent to protect you from things. How many of you know if you have a child and they touch something that is hot, an eye of the stove or something like that, they may lightly touch it and get a first degree burn. Now we can get angry as children of God because we have touched some things and they've given us first degree burns, but hopefully we learn from the pain and then we can rejoice in the pain because getting the first degree burn protect us from getting second and third degree burns. This is where his love and discipline is on display to us. What's beautiful about this is when he says, in your, in your struggle of sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He is saying these things with a savior who shed all of his blood for us in mind. When he says these things about us enduring and being disciplined, he is saying all of these against the backdrop that we should have in our mind of a son who endured to the uttermost for me and for you. That's why he goes on trying to continue to break this point down in verse eight. He says, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, he's basically saying all of, our, all of us at some point have been disciplined by parents or teachers. We've all participated in that. He says, if you go on left without discipline in which we've all participated, he says, then you're illegitimate children. You're not even sons. He says, you, you don't have a part. And we, we you know, and we understand this. This is why I don't whoop your kids. Like, I take care of mine. I discipline mine. I'm, they're, they're not my legitimate children. And so I'm gonna kind of look to you and go, you gonna take, you know, you're gonna take care of this? Well, we don't do that with you. We try to love and correct and teach and you know, do some things in your kids. But if one of your kids start losing their mind in there and hitting other kids, we're not gonna even, we're gonna stop the situation. Then who are we gonna come get? Their legitimate parent. And then, <laughs> and then it's on you to legitimately do whatever you wanna do with that kid to discipline them. So this is, this is a good sign. And this is where pain and discipline and training actually is a gift. I, I would say it this way. Pain isn't evidence that he's abandoned you. Pain is evidence that he's adopted you. That's what it shows. That I'm no longer an illegitimate child. Now that's what you have to understand. We like to think that we're all God's children. That the whole world is God's children. That's not biblical. God's children are the ones who have had their sins paid for by his son. That's how you get adopted in the family. The whole world isn't God's children. Ephesians told us very clearly, he said, before you came to Christ, you were sons and daughters of disobedience, which is his way of saying, you're on the other side, big fella. But when we live under the sacrifice of the only begotten son, then and only then do we become his sons and daughters. And the pain, the trials, the hardships we go through, there are signs that we in fact have been adopted not signs that he has forgotten us or abandoned us, but signs that he is there. Signs that we now have this connection to Jesus. The passage goes on in verses nine and 10. He says, besides this, 
We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Some of you are like, "Mm -mm." Uh, (laughs) shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits, talking about God and live for they, back talking about earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. He's saying that every earthly father is gonna get disciplined wrong. They're, cause they're doing it as what seems best to them. He says differently than that, God, he disciplines us for our good. So that's where we have seen that it is a gift to receive this because it confirms that we are his kids. It confirms that we are ones who have been accepted and approved by him. That pain is not a sign of condemnation, it's confirmation that we have received this gift of adoption. That is why pain is a gift. And then here he's saying this pain is actually a good thing because God is the one who's doing it. And God does things for our good because he's a good father set to provide and protect us. Now, we know that just because it's something that God is doing for our good, it does not mean it is going to feel good. And this is the hard part. We, we just want life to feel good. We're the most comfort-seeking, and I dare I say, softest generation ever. So afraid of pain. But comfort, friends, comfort is a slow death. You know you are on the right track with Jesus when pain becomes something that you fear less and less and something more and more that you see as a sign that you are in fact on that straight and narrow path that sometimes, albeit, is very treacherous. The pastor of this church, I believe, is trying to help us understand that our God does not waste the pain that he allows to happen in our life. And this is where I would just camp out for a second and, and, and try to talk about a, a very deceptive um, teaching understanding of the negative things that happen in our lives that I think is detrimental to a true faith and a true father who does love us. Sometimes when bad things happen, let's throw out an example and, I, and I forgive me if this hits close to home for anybody. There's a family who has parent killed by a drunk driver. And the teenagers aren't in the car when their parents pass away. And the teenagers show up to their youth pastor and they go, why did this happen? A very misguided, I believe, and dangerous teaching would be to merely say, because God loves us, he gives us free will and free choice. In a world where God loves his people enough to choose good or evil, some people are going to choose evil. And when some people choose evil, evil things are gonna happen. So son, daughter of the slain parents at the neglect and drunkenness of this individual, why did this happen? Simply because God gave free will and someone abused that free will to over-intoxicate and get behind the wheel of a car. That's why this happened. And that's, that's, that's a teaching. And that's, that's where we leave those things. And if we leave those things right there, that is a very dangerous place to go. Because what that does is now we've become God's spin team 
And we have potentially even missed out on being able to rejoice in the things that God allows us to go through. Not to say that God willed and God intended and God purposefully orchestrated the alcohol into the drunk and got him behind the wheel. That is by far not what I'm saying. But to just say all that is just because somebody made a bad choice and to not go, this is the divine destined will of God in your life that you would be someone who would walk through the loss of parents at an early age so that you could turn that wound into a weapon to get God out of the picture is just as sinful. Because here's what I've come to learn, even in my own life, the biggest, most painful, I wish I could have avoided in the moment, wounds in my life. Time and time again, I have watched God mold and train and take those wounds and turn them into weapons to fight against my own flesh and the flesh and the sin of other people for God's glory and the advancement of his kingdom. And you've seen that happen in your own life. So don't just go, oh, oh, somebody made a stupid decision. No. Even the evil, even the vile, even the wicked, even the most detestable things that we experience even in our own life, whether self-inflicted or others dealt those hands to us, they are all things that our Father was sovereign over and will use for his purposes. I remember struggling with this after my dad was murdered a pain that I'd never felt before, an anger that I'd never felt before. A father killed in cold blood, even in his own home. Shock, anger. I remember going to counseling, counselor being like, you need to go spend some time away with your heavenly father. And again, I'm a pastor at this time. I'm, I'm, I'm in my thirties at this time. And I agree to this. And I said, I'm going to go. I went on a solo trip to uh, Linville Gorge in the mountains in North Carolina, where where I was living at the time. And I thought I would go have this great encounter with God and go meet meet with him and and sit with him. And and I would let my heavenly father do what I know I've seen him do in my life before. I would let my heavenly father heal the wounds from my earthly father. Now, again, this was a, a different one. This was something that was already there. But if you know a little bit more about my story, it hasn't been a, a great relationship. And, and there I grew up in a home that uh, was, was hard at times and saw things I shouldn't have seen at times. But in the midst of that, God had brought a, a lot of healing and a lot of hope back. And I would probably been no more hopeful about my relationship with my earthly father than a few weeks before he was shot and killed. And so I get in my mind that I'm going to go up and I'm going to have this, this great moment with God. You know, I'm going to be like Moses and go climb the mountain and just go see the face of my father and all those warm fuzzies that a child wants to have, all that relationship, all those things that I, I want to get from God, I, I want to see happen there on that mountaintop. And so I go and, I, and, I, I, and again, I, it was so cute. You know, I had my journal and my Bible and I had all the things and I had my quiet time and I prayed and I, and I felt like I was just up there absolutely wasting my time. And, I, and look, hear me on this. I was trying. I wanted the tears to come out. I wanted uh, the clouds to open up. I, I mean, I, you know how you get desperate in those moments and you're like, you know, you're in those, you know, you, you purposely set out to have a retreat moment and you're like, God, like, I'm just going to listen to you now. And you just kind of get quiet and you look around and you're like, is it going to be a bird? Like, are you going to send a butterfly? Like, am I going to get a cardinal? Like, is it going to, is it going to be a rainbow? Like you're just, you're, you're, you're desperate and you're longing for your, for, for God to speak into you. This, if, 
And, and that's how I felt. I was like, man, if, if I'm experiencing this discipline and I've read Hebrews before this moment, and I go like, okay, God, this is a pain. This is a hardship. This is something you're allowing to happen in my life, but I believe you're going to use this for good. And I'm showing up on this mountain going, show me how. It didn't feel good. I'm asking the question that the Hebrew church was asking, man, if you're better, why is this worse? I say those things and you know, time comes to pack back up and head back down the mountain and go back to being a dad, a father, and a pastor. And what I hoped I was gonna feel, what I was expecting to happen, didn't happen on the mountaintop. And I tried to do everything right. And I get in the car and I'm, I'm driving in my little silver Toyota Corolla uh, down out of the mountains into our house in Sanford, North Carolina. And I'd stopped to get some gas and got back in the car. And I don't know what it was. Um, just this feeling of frustration came over me. And all the thoughts had been spinning. And, 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 and honestly, I, got, I just, I wasn't praying this, but I'm thinking this. And I know God hears my thoughts, but I'm thinking, okay, like I just tried to do all of this to try to have this moment to meet with you. And I'm a dad. I'm going, God, if my kids want a moment with me, I'm showing my face to them. I'm not going to leave them questioning or wondering. I'm like, God, I know you're real. I know you exist, but why is it like this? I've already gone through this, this, and this, and this. I'm just I'm whining, whining, complaining. I get it all out and it wasn't pretty. And I feel like the voice of the father begins to start talking. I want it on the mountain. It happened in the Corolla. <laughs> when I begin to hear the father, not, out, not audibly out loud, but, but deep within the recesses and spirit of my heart as I'm complaining and I'm telling him and I'm saying, God, like, how could you continue to allow this to happen? How could you not show up? How could you not meet me in this stuff? Where are you at in this? It doesn't feel like you're here. You're paying any attention to this. Why is it just more pain after more pain after more pain? Why is this going through this? I, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm trying to do things right. I, I've, I've done the list. I've given my life to serving you. What's going on here? I feel the father say, son, do you think that I did not have it measured to a molecular level how much pain I was gonna allow my son Jesus to go through. Do you don't think I knew how many thorns were gonna be on the crown? Do you not think that I knew exactly how long the nails were? Do you not think I knew how many drops of spittle would be put into his eyes? Do you not think I knew how many follicles of hair would be pulled out of his beard? Do you not know how deep I knew that the lashes were gonna go that were put upon his back as he was flagged or flogged 49 times? You think I just had some willy-nilly experience up in heaven just letting all that happen? No, son. I know exactly how much pain to let my sons go through. Your pain is measured too. And in that moment, you just kind of shut up. And you go, God, if you did not waste a molecule of pain on your son, then I've got to believe in my Toyota Corolla that you are not wasting a molecule of the pain I'm experiencing either. But you have a purpose for it. In the same way you had a purpose for your son, you have a purpose for me as, my, as, as your son. And so I say to you in this room, is there anything that the Lord has taught me in my 35 years of this life is that he does not waste pain he does not waste pain. And he has it measured. And in due time, you will be able to see its purpose. 
And listen, I wish I could tell you that in that due time, it was all down here. But I'm willing to bet. There's some pain that I've experienced that's never gonna make sense this side of Jordan. I'm willing to bet there's some of yours that won't either. You gotta be okay with that. And trust, you got a father who loves you and cares for you. I came across these words from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, famous scholar, theologian, and pastor. He is dead, dead, by the way. But an amazing, amazing line I wanted to share with you because it's brought so much encouragement to me. He says, the Lord knows how to educate you up to a point where you can endure in years to come what you could never endure today. Say it one more time. The Lord knows how to educate you up to a point where you can endure in years to come what you could never endure today. Just as today he may make you stand firm under a burden that 10 years earlier would have crushed you into dust. Is that your truth? Would you be willing to swallow that incredibly hard pill? That the pain that you are going through now is preparing you for something in your 50s or your 60s or your 70s or your 80s? That if it did not happen this way, it would kill you at 80, it would kill you at 50, it would kill you at 60. And then on the other side, would you be willing to, to praise God in reverse for the work he's been doing in your life as you bear up under the weight of what you're going through now? The current childlessness, the current depression, the current debt, the current anxiety, the current family tension and drama, the current things that you have going on. Would you be willing to look backwards in the rear view of God's grace and go, if you had not gotten me through all of that, this would have been putting me into fine dust in the ground, crushed under the weight of this burden. But I have learned by your grace how to place my burden onto the one who said come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest I told you it starts with wrestling but if you can go through it friends Jesus promise is it ends in rest and so as we commune with him today and we take his broken body and his poured out blood I pray that we see this ultimate and final sacrifice that has paid the way for us to come into this hope, to come into this family, to come into this new freedom from weariness and freedom from the faint heart. I pray today that, that maybe you take a similar spiritual practice as I did in the car. See, I was, I was on the mountain trying to be cute with God, trying to do what I thought I needed to do as a good, nice Christian. When I, when I got in the car, I just let what was really on my heart come out to a father who can really handle what his kids are going through. Nobody can handle a kid's tantrum like their true, legitimate father. And he can handle yours as well. And sometimes he actually needs you to get all that out so that you can hear it and so that he can speak into your real feelings so that he can really heal those feelings pray as you commune with him that you would let that happen. That you would talk. That you would share those things. 
after the service is over, I'll, I'll be up here as long as you need somebody to be up here to pray and walk with you alongside of those things. If you're here today and you don't know this father I'm talking about, you don't know his son who made a way for you to truly have hope in whatever pain you feel, I invite you to put your hope and your faith and your trust in him. So at the end, there would be rest. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. We thank you. We have no hope without you. Pray that all of my brothers and sisters here who are listening today would understand that you are a God who loves them. I pray for those in the room today who have a hard time seeing you as a father who would dare to discipline because they grew up with a monster of a man in their own home who disciplined out of anger and hatred and his own wounds. I pray today, God, you would give some people the freedom from how hard it is to look to see you as a loving father because they have to look past an earthly father. I pray that from this day forward, they're able to see you first. They don't ever see, they don't ever see him again without first seeing you for who you are and what you've done. We thank you, Jesus, that you were the son who felt the full wrath of the father so that we can be sons and daughters of the most high king. A king we can also call Abba. Daddy. Father. It's in your name I pray, Jesus.